This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins, which airs bi-weekly on KGNU 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. On the weeks like this without a new episode, we'll be posting an episode from our archives. Today we're going to listen to a conversation with labor history educator Dr. Erica Wills that aired on Labor Day 2023. She is professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School for Workers and the Grace Carroll Rocky Mountain Labor School, which comes to the Colorado School of Mines from July 7th through July 13th this year. To find out more information and register, search for the Grace Carroll Rocky Mountain Labor School in your favorite web search engine. Uh, Now on to our conversation. This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO. Our guest today is Dr. Erica Wills, professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School for Workers and a longtime labor activist. Thank you for joining us on the Labor Exchange, Dr. Wills. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We like to to start off by getting to know our our guests a little better. Um, Can you tell our listeners a a bit about yourself? Sure. So I have been at the School for Workers for one year in Wisconsin, but before that, I actually lived in Colorado. So I spent many years in Colorado getting to know the labor movement there, uh, participating in it, getting to know the labor history, which was really fantastic. My grandpa was a union carpenter, which was one of the first ways that I was exposed to unions. And my dad is, he's been a, a union teacher and also worked with the United Steelworkers. So I, I come from a union family and I really appreciate being able to talk a little bit about labor and labor history uh, now that we're here at Labor Day weekend. Yeah, and and you know, with that family history, what does Labor Day mean to you? What does it mean this weekend that we're we're celebrating? And this will air on Labor Day. We're talking Friday before. So there's really two things about that that I want to say. As a labor historian, as one of the areas that I study being labor history, in most of the world, May Day is Labor Day. And in the United States, the Haymarket riot happened in, I believe, 1886 during that time, which was a conflict between unionizing workers and the police in Chicago that ended up in several people being arrested and hung, who we call the Haymarket Martyrs. It was considered a very radical sector of unionism. And so basically that Labor Day as May Day has been erased from U.S. history because of its radical roots. And instead, we've moved when we celebrate Labor Day as a different date than the rest of the world. But I think we should we should recognize that radical history and recognize the way the rest of the world celebrates it. However, also personally, I think that Labor Day is a great way that we can get in our communities and bring our families and let our kids know and our neighbors know what unions are and what they do. So if you're a union member, if you're a educator, if you are someone who just supports the rights of workers, I really think that this is a time to get out and show that support educate people about why unions are important and how they help not only the members themselves, but entire communities support the middle class and support working people. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I think that's um, a, a special day for labor, and I, I appreciate you bringing some of that radical history, because if anyone knows about Colorado labor history, we basically start super radical and stay there for a very long time. Uh, Big Bill Haywood, um, the uh, founder of our organization, David C. Coates, is at the State Federation of Labor. Um, both would be, would be considered uh, very radical today. Um, wanted to ask you a little bit about your work with the miners. So you had a recent uh, piece called Miners versus Wall Street Strike in the Era of Asset Management Capitalism. Can you can you just tell us a little bit about that, about what that was about? Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a couple points that I think are important to recognize with that. First of all, let me tell tell you about the United Mine Workers who represent coal miners in the US. And the article looks specifically at the Warrior Met strike where the mine workers, the UMWA, United Mine Workers of America, were on strike against Warrior Met for unfair labor practices. And one of the early challenges in this, the whole labor dispute was that Warrior Met had been a company that came out of a bankruptcy formation where private equity created this company and then then sold it and spun it off so that a whole new set of Wall Street investors were the major shareholders of the company. This is a little bit different than a traditional model where you have a board of directors and individuals as shareholders. Instead, BlackRock, who is one of the big three on Wall Street, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard was the major shareholder for the majority of the time during the labor dispute, and then it became Vanguard. This really changed the sort of campaign because if you think about it, instead of doing traditional actions where you can put a face to who is accountable for making decisions for the company, for voting in a certain way, and put pressure on them, Wall Street as major shareholders in these companies are somewhat faceless. And even to the extent that often the investment and trading decisions aren't even being made by individuals, but are being made by computers based on algorithms. So this became um, a really difficult labor dispute that I think set a forward-looking way that the labor movement is going to have to engage with Wall Street during organizing, during contract negotiations and during labor disputes. And that's gonna shift our tactics and, and the way that we create allies. The other part of this that goes along with Wall Street as well is we're seeing a record amount of stock buybacks that companies are engaging in. And for the first time, this has become a huge issue with national campaigns such as the Teamsters UPS campaign that just occurred where information was publicized, not just about the CEO pay, but also the dividends that were being paid and the stock buybacks. And specifically, when I say stock buybacks, I'm talking about companies who buy back their own stock on the open market, which is a uh, something that was illegal before 1983. It was actually considered market manipulation. So prior to 1983, that couldn't happen. With the deregulation after 1983, that's become increasingly common. And what it does is it channels the profits of the company into the pockets of the wealthy and the Wall Street investors instead of having them engage in paying their workers 
correctly or what they're doing, and also long-term investment in, in the company. And so we've seen that with the Teamsters and UPS. We're currently seeing it with the UAW campaign that's going on with the big three auto manufacturers, where they're saying, here's how much is being paid to shareholders. They have the money to be able to invest in operations and workers as well. And this is something that the uh, rail and the airline have also taken on with their no stock buybacks campaigns, which directly ask the public to support them in making sure that companies invest in their workforce and operations before they channel money into the wealthy and Wall Street. So those are two sort of trends that I see coming out of that that are important to recognize in the labor movement. Yeah, and I love you lifting up those stock buybacks because with rail safety, to me, it's like you you invested in buying back the stock instead of investing in improving the infrastructure around it and just happen to have, I mentioned lots on this show, the railroad tracks just near my house and and would love to see you know, more investment in rail and in our safety with it. So very much appreciate that uh, perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. And also with rail, my understanding is that the rail companies wanted more investment from Wall Street. And as part of that process, Wall Street really pushed the precision timing model that is one of the causes of the kind of longer trains, speed up, less people being hired, and the safety issues that have gone along with it. Uh, We see the power of Wall Street to shape companies' decisions right now, even with the studio strikes that are happening with uh, SAG-AFTRA and and WGA as well, and the push for increased profits in streaming. Our guest today is Dr. Erica Wills with the University of Wisconsin-Madison School for Workers. In addition to your work at the University of Wisconsin, you teach at the Grace Carroll Rocky Mountain Labor School, a a regional uh, labor school that will be coming to Colorado uh, next year in July. Uh, Can you describe that school for us a bit? Absolutely. So Grace Carroll Rocky Mountain Labor School is so much fun to go to and to teach at. It is, I believe, the last surviving of the regional AFL-CIO labor schools. And typically, there every region would have one of these. This is the Rocky Mountain region, one which is the eight Rocky Mountain states. However, it draws individuals from across the U.S., other states, and I believe last year, even Canada, to come and spend a week there really diving into labor education, different areas. Uh, I teach labor history there. There's also collective bargaining, there's labor law, there's organizing, there's a variety of classes that happen during the day. And it is a fantastic way to have everyone from rank and file to leadership be able to gain that invaluable education. And then there's also the element by bringing all these people together who are from different unions, different states, different industries, It creates this broader base solidarity where people can have conversations and understand that while you may be a tech worker and the other person might be working in a steel mill, you're still faced with a lot of similar issues, including worker surveillance, speed up, uh, sometimes time theft, and people who don't necessarily see on the surface the ways in which their industries might be connected, see the ways in which they as workers are 
in a similar position to create more of a broad-based solidarity for the labor movement. And I think as well as the educational component, that kind of solidarity building is what we really need at, at this at this time. Well, and you mentioned you teach the labor history class, uh, definitely one of the most popular classes at that school. What's it like to, to teach uh, a room full of active, energetic union members? Uh, dream come true. <laughs> That's what I love, right? This is why I do what I do is to be able to teach groups like that. And typically it's a fantastic group because they're fired up. They're there because they want to be there. They want to learn. And part of the way that I approach labor history is to give the historical context, to tell some of the stories, to tell the lessons we've learned from the past, but always to connect it to the present. Because if we aren't looking at the ways in which, for example, organizing was happening before the National Labor Relations Act, which applies to most private sector employees in the US, uh, and how now in the tech industry, for example, we have non-majority unions that are, are organizing and, and working in that way, we don't understand how those lessons from, from prior generations connect to what's going on now. And so it's really fantastic to see people engage with the history, but then also to see them walking away knowing that history is not just a list of facts or a list of dates or a list of people. It is a living thing that I'm contributing to as a union rank and file member. And here's what I can do in my local. And here's how it connects to the struggles that we're faced with today. So that's really, I think, the objective when I go into the course and bringing all those unions and all those voices together helps us achieve, achieve that. Well, and that's what I love about your class and something that I think in my, my attempt to teach labor history is I've always had a passion for it myself or just a, a sort of enjoyment of reading it. But, but it's like, to what end? What are we talking about when we talk about this and why? And I think um, you're pretty good at making that connection for people. And also, uh, there's a lot of things that divide us in this world. And um, when folks have that connection that they find through history, I find that that does create a connection that helps them um, sort of ground themselves as they, they learn. Because I think one of the things that I, I find about Grace Carroll is that there's so many diverse people there across the political spectrum because they're there to build their union. And that's not a partisan issue. I did want to uh, speak to you a bit about that, um, you know, within the, the appearance of a more divisive and uh, and divided nation what part could labor play in uniting people across these divides? Yeah, that's something I actually think quite a lot about. And when I go into different classroom settings or learning settings, like you were talking about, typically people are there across the political spectrum. So what I look for are things that we can agree on as a starting place. And oftentimes with some diversity politically and membership, one of the things that I've found as a point that we can come together on is the issue of income and wealth inequality in the U.S. The growing rich being a small, 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 less than 1%, and the majority of working people finding it harder and harder to make ends meet, and especially to believe that they can give their children a better life than they have now. That's become increasingly difficult really since the late 1970s. And we're seeing that peaking 
And I think it connects to public interest in unions. So the more that unions can mobilize membership along issues of economic inequality, pass legislation that is common sense ways, be it taxation, be it public programs, be it a variety of proposals that are out there to bridge that gap and then message around, unions messaging around how that helps all workers, not just union workers, but all workers raise up the level of, 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 of life, of, of, of working conditions, pay, enjoyment of time outside of work, vacation, uh, maybe being able to work one job instead of two or three jobs, which has happened oftentimes. That's the reality that people are faced with. I think that's something that we can come around in the labor movement, dependent, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, and we can message to the larger public about that they understand and is both a economic reality and an emotional reality for most people. And so that, I think, is one of the most important things that we can engage with right now. I really appreciate that message because, you know, my my background isn't with a, you know, long union uh, uh, background, although I do have a grandma that was a long-term CWA member. But seeing what the labor movement was doing as I was struggling, I can see that that was a place where I saw people actually trying to deal with the issues that I saw in my own life. And so I feel like that's one of those uh, connections uh, we could make. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about, um, so one of our first times meeting was uh, an event uh, we did with uh, Sarah Nelson, the um, charismatic uh, leader of a flight attendance union. Um, she wanted to talk about uh, the new crop of labor leaders, uh, maybe Sarah specifically, but just in general, what are you seeing out there? And um, and what do you think, um, you know, what who who do you think that next crop of leaders will be? And, and what do you think is going to change within that leadership? Absolutely. So I'll start with Sarah specifically, since you you brought her up. Uh, Sarah has become really a hero of mine and someone who I I both reach out to when I have questions or guide need guidance on something, and also someone who I see as a role model and is blazing a trail for where the labor movement can go as a more progressive and inclusive movement, because those two things should go together. She has been very vocal about organizing all types of workers. Uh, She's been vocal about the use of strikes and the potential use of the general strike and the need for reform in labor law to make it so that unions are on a fair playing field with companies who right now can drag their feet and oftentimes very much say that they'll starve workers out before they'll get a contract. So Sarah has really set the bar high, I think, for the generation of of new labor leaders we're going to see, but also has been a a great role model and mentor for them. So I'm seeing the, this new generation of leaders, and even we brought up Grace Kelly Rocky Mountain Labor School. Uh, from the time I was there maybe 10 years ago to now, I've seen it become so much more diverse, so much more inclusive, and the demographics really change. And I think that's fantastic because as a labor movement, we need to recognize that we have all these connections with social issues and with the needs of 
all workers in an inclusive way, all industries, all demographics. And so we have young leaders that are coming out of, for instance, Starbucks. And I'm thinking of Jazz Brizak, for one, who that was considered, she was one of the organizers for the original Starbucks that was organized in Buffalo, New York. And that was considered a area that couldn't be organized because there was really quick turnover. Currently, I think there's 330 Starbucks that are organized, and yet we don't have a contract with any of them in the U.S. because Starbucks is able to break the law without any financial penalties, basically. The the NLRB, which is the National Labor Relations Board, which is uh, the enforcement agency for the National Labor Relations Act, it has been increasingly defunded and underfunded for the past at least maybe 20 years. And so it takes a long time for things like illegal termination of workers or unfair labor practices or et cetera to be be, uh, ruled on by the board. And so uh, we're seeing that there's a call for that to change. And this young generation of workers who feel that they are, they especially come out of COVID, that they, the companies didn't have oftentimes the respect that one might have thought they would. They put workers' health and safety at risk. And so we're seeing a more maybe activist, activated group. And we're seeing groups that's willing to reach out across sectoral boundaries. So going back, for example, to the United Mine Workers, they reached out to SAG-AFTRA during their Warrior Met strike and uh, got support there. They have been supporting United Steelworker nurses who are on strike. The Starbucks Workers Union had people come to the picket line and the Amazon Workers Union who are organizing did as well. So there's just this new generation who is thinking outside the box. And this is an important time for us to recognize and I think support that this new crop of leaders. Well, yeah, and I just do love seeing that cross-pollination that we see in the, the unifying uh, campaign in Starbucks and that people see it, they want to support those folks. At least that's what I've seen. And and even just the the kind of fun parts of, uh, I remember during the deep winter here in Colorado, we had a, a strike uh, action with the Starbucks workers and a gentleman came out in very full, you know, uh, 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 heated uh, coat in order to, because he's normally working outside. He's a, was a sheet metal worker. And just to see everyone's eyes light up because there's this big tough union dude coming out to, um, to support him at 5 a.m. Uh, it was just really uh, fun uh, to see those connections be made because um, people yeah. were passionate. They wanted to be there. Absolutely. There's two I want to give a shout out to. One is actually in Pueblo, Colorado, when the teachers went on strike. And one of the groups they reached out to was the United Steelworkers because the United Steelworkers in Pueblo had had, um, I believe, seven year labor dispute, which resulted in the time at the largest back pay settlement in National Labor Relations Board history. So the teachers union was saying, hey, we have this industrial union who's gone through this, who knows this, let's create alliances. Another one that's happening right now that I don't think is getting enough enough press and coverage is the medieval times workers who are have organized and are going for a first contract. Specifically, I've worked for the worked with the ones and spoke with the ones who are in uh, Buena Park, 
California, where all the amusement parks and, and everything is. And they've been on strike since February, trying to get a first contract. These are performers who ride horses and joust and do this sort of medieval show. And it's dangerous work. You're working with live animals, you're doing stunts, there's a lot of health and safety issues. And so they've faced a company that just is not moving in this bargaining process. And one area where they've gotten support is through the Writers Guild, the WGA strikers that are in Los Angeles. And so we've had this combination of performers and writers who are coming together to support this this group who are really doing everything they can to to make the National Labor Relations Act and make the promise of unionization a reality on the ground for workers. Well, and I think it's a good illustration because there's an isolation sometimes to union organizing in that you're in this um, small group that's, you know, or your workplace group that's that's building and trying to build out a bigger community from that. Um, we saw that here locally. We had a, a local coffee shop, um, the Mercury Cafe, voted to unionize and went out for a little action where we all uh, went and got uh, tea and coffee there. And, um, and there was uh, workers from Urban Peak, which is our first unhoused services provider that's been um, unionized in the state. And, you know, to see those connections between the two that wouldn't have been there, um, it's been pretty powerful to see. And and again, for our listeners, um, the the Pueblo Steel strike and that that long history we've covered on this program under uh, uh, with Joel Buchanan, a brilliant uh, labor activist down there. And then the History Colorado did a great uh, uh, Steel City exhibit, which I believe is still on display. So make sure you check those out. Um, I wanted to ask you, music is uh, pretty important to your class and to um, the Grace Carroll Rocky Mountain Labor School. Uh, what are some of your favorite labor songs, both old and new? And and why do you think music's important? Right. That's a big one. Uh, so I think music and labor arts are extremely important because they speak not only to our minds, but to our hearts. We, we feel it. We have emotions when we listen to music. Music is a way that we can communicate things across cultures and we can fire people up in a way that, that just doesn't happen with speech alone. And so I love to use music in my class, recorded music, music videos, live performers, whatever I can. And oftentimes it comes out of the history of Joe Hill, a... Uh, industrial workers of the world, uh, IWW songwriter and activist who wrote the, you know, there's no recordings of his music. We don't know what he sounded like, but it took these tunes that people knew and it put labor lyrics to it. So there was what's called the Little Red Songbook, which was just this little printing of the lyrics and it would have the tune that it goes to and it would fit in someone's back pocket and it would be circulated around so that people could sing these songs together and singing became the collective action it brought everyone together in solidarity and so this is a really important point in history also that he was a uh, I think historians pretty much agree, um, unjustly executed by the state of Utah, um, perhaps, you know, very much for his union activism. Uh, there's been a, you know, a whole, a whole vein of 
labor musicians who have come out of that. Woody Guthrie is a classic one who we have recordings, uh, including one of the ways that I learned about the Ludlow Massacre was through him telling the story of that event through music. And much of his music does that. And it does it in a way that you really feel it more than if you just heard someone read a paragraph about it or you Googled what it was. You get the emotion. Everyone from, you know, now at the uh, at the Warrior Met, uh, the United Mine Workers strike at Warrior Met, Tom Morello, who is the guitarist for Rage Against the Machine, he performs himself as the Night Watchman. Was, he came there in solidarity and he performed for the strikers and other people who were there in support. And it was just a really amazing gathering of people together to hear this music that comes out of that labor tradition, but is brought into the present. So one of his songs that he's done uh, with Grandson is called Hold the Line. I think it is a contemporary classic already of music to be played on the strike line and to fire people up and to really feel, you know, we might not succeed today, but we're going to keep doing this. And in doing that, we're walking in the paths of those who came before us and upholding that. And so coming together around music becomes a central way that we can express that, feel that, communicate that with our community and build broader solidarity. Thank you for that. Um, we are getting towards the end of our time together. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with this Labor Day? I would just like to say that participating in Labor Day events, getting out there to support workers who might be organizing right now, who might be on strike or part of a labor dispute, who might even just be asking questions about what is a union? How would I unionize? is really important. And there's no one person who can do that. The one person who can do that is you. <laughs> it's the person who has the knowledge, the person who's listening to this because they want to know about what's happening in labor, gives you the qualifications to be able to support organizing workers, to be able to support and not cross a picket line, to be able to share what you know about unions. So don't consider that that's someone else's job or someone else will take care of it. We're all in this together and we can all play a really important role, no matter what that role is in bringing our experience and our knowledge to the labor movement. So I wanna thank you for having me on the show and I hope that you have a wonderful Labor Day. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Wills. This has been The Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild, Local 37074. Our guest today has been Dr. Erica Wills, professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School for Workers and the Grace Carroll Rocky Mountain Labor School. The Labor Exchange is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find more great labor radio on laborradionetwork.org.